0: AI is far more advanced than people realize. It's the people problems that we have and some of that's maturity and some of that's trust. And when you listen to Dave Ferrucci, the guy that arguably invented Watson with his team, he says the only way that we're going to get over this to where we actually believe and trust AI is when it's at the stage that it could explain itself.
1: Hello and welcome to Minto Dialogue, episode number 317. Today is Sunday the 3rd of March 2019, and this interview is with my great friend Jeremy Waite. Jeremy is the Chief Strategy Officer at IBM Watson. He's a master storyteller, speaker, author of three books, and host of the wonderful and timeless Ten Words podcast. In this conversation with Jeremy, we discuss the state of AI, some of the prowesses of IBM's Watson and the challenges of implementing artificial intelligence in business, and much more. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue today back on the show after quite the absence my wonderful friend Jeremy Waite. So Jeremy you and I are going to have a little fun chatting today. This is going to not be like my regular podcast. We're going to go off script. We're going to be who we are. So let's start by at least explaining who you are and and where are
0: you these days Jeremy. Um, Thanks for having me on. It's a joy to be back. And um, thanks for making me these incredible drinks. We're sat here with some vodka and martini mix and lemon, which I think is going to inspire the conversation because we're going to do something that we don't often do, which is kind of looking behind the scenes of riffing on a piece of content, which is going to become a book, which we haven't decided yet. So you guys are literally the first to hear this conversation around a topic which we hope resonates with you. Um, My full-time job, my grown-up work, is I'm the CSO of IBM Watson. I've been around the industry quite a long time, 46 years old. I used to be the head of strategy at Salesforce and worked on some acquisitions and head of social strategy at Adobe before then. So mainly a marketing background, but spend a lot of time on stage, do a lot of keynotes. I've written three books. We've known each other a long time and we share a passion for storytelling and trying to inspire other people to tell their stories as well. And I think Hopefully, we're going to dig into some of that today. So we're going to have a slightly unique view Mm -hmm. on what content may look like in the future. But um, my hope is that you guys listening to this are going to take something away from it as well, which hopefully inspires you to go and do something as well as listening to us riff on some fun things. All
1: right, let's start with um, Watson, AI. Give us your point of view on, on artificial intelligence today in that we have this context where more and more companies are getting on the bandwagon, more and more companies understanding that it is actually potential is probably the most disruptive force in in the coming years. And yet they have many people who look at it as a, potentially a bad disruptive take-away-all-jobs, maybe cyborgs, and then the positive is maybe just going to replace everything we need to do and make us the most efficient companies in the world. Where do you sit on
0: AI and specifically with Watson as your engine? Oh my gosh! So we're not going to do small talk. We're going straight into the big stuff. Mm-hmm. Are <laughs> you trying to get me sacked straight away? Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So, so listen. There's th- this is a topic that I absolutely love talking about. There's a lot of misconceptions, and depending upon which magazine article you read, which newspaper, Wired, Fast Company, Financial Times. If you read analyst reports, you listen to IDC, Gartner, Forrester, whoever it is everyone has their own opinion on AI and artificial intelligence and what's it actually going to do. And you've got on the one extreme, the people like Sam Harris that a few years ago shared in what was quite actually a wonderful Ted talk, that AI is pretty much either going to destroy the world or inspire us to destroy ourselves. And then on the other extreme, you've got people, I guess like me who would say actually artificial intelligence or AI is actually the wrong phrase to, to call it, because what actually is happening, a lot of people don't realize this, there's actually three different types of AI. You have narrow AI, general AI, and super AI. And, you know, the super AI is the Elon Musk, you know, we've got to, we're have going to live on Mars and there's going to be these, you know, sentient beings. Um, general AI is going to be where you've got an AI that can do all of these different multitasks like humans and learn lots of different things. But actually 99% of use cases in the world right now are just narrow AI of... A computer helping you to do one thing faster. So, what I like to say at IBM, representing Watson, which I believe is at the moment anyway the largest uh, enterprise AI platform in the world, is just an IA. That's it. You know, it's, it's nothing to do with replacing jobs. It's nothing to do with you know these robots. It's not science fiction movies. There's none of that Terminator X Machina type stuff. It's an intelligent assistant that helps you to do your job faster. Mm-hmm. And all Watson is, is a set of commands. And it's actually 50 APIs. If you want to get into the technical stuff, we could do that. It's it's 50 commands that essentially help you to do your job faster. So whatever industry job you have using that type of an AI, it's like having the world's best assistant by your side all the time. Well, what does that mean? It could process the equivalent of 500 gig a second. What does that mean? You have a system in your pocket that can read a million books a second. It could process 10 million records a second. Anyway, so I don't want to sound all pitchy. But AI can genuinely revolutionize the way that we work. But when we're faced with this concept of the average employee wastes, I believe, I'm going off the top of my head now, I've not got my notes, 19.8% of their time. The average employee, me and you, we waste somewhere around about 19, 20% of our time searching for stuff that just helps us do our jobs. Mm -hmm. So we waste, on average, about a day a week. So if you could have an AI that could help save you that much time as an intelligent assistant, what's not to love about that? It's got nothing to do with replacing jobs. It's got everything to do with helping you to do your job better. And that's the thing that really gets me out of bed when you look at the AI stuff. It's like, how can we help more people to do more of their job better? And with that time saved, this is the big question, what do you do with that? Create more stuff? Do you love people more? Do you spend more time in other areas that you want? Whatever the thing is, be more creative. Um, it's an intelligent assistant that helps you do your job faster.
1: So, funny thing. So, as I was listening to you, IA, that's actually how the French call it, l'intelligence artificielle. So, they already start with IA. Hmm. I think the French have a beat I like that's that. interesting on how to use technology and they, and they systematically have a sociologic sociological approach to things and introducing the human being. So it's sort of inbred in the human way. The second statistic that came out in my mind is 20% because certain companies, or at least Google anyway, is known for giving away 20% of its time, at least or giving employees the opportunity to spend 20% of their time sure. doing things. And and maybe if we applied AI or IA appropriately, we'd all have a day to do what we think is important. Mm-hmm. I think that was a nice little... you know, process within there. Of the 50 apps that you were talking about, at least, you know, functions within AI, one of them is if this, then that. Is that an appropriate manner of explaining one of the 50? Give us a little bit more of an understanding of what those 50
0: are. No, no, so so the APIs, it's... um, yeah, this is Watson is basically a toolbox. You know, some people mistakenly think that this huge AI that IBM's been building really, as far back as officially the team was created in 2008. The story really extends back a few decades before, but became famous in 1997 with the Deep Blue team when they pit you know this computer against Gary Kasparov, the grandmaster that's never been beaten ever, and this is the first time that he ever gets beaten, and then he retires right afterwards. And he jokes in his book and his TED Talk that IBM destroyed his life. Um, and now he's been very complimentary about AI. But he said, he said at the time, which was just over 20 years ago, that that was a tipping point that machines became intelligent. Now, what happened about 10 years after that chess game, 2007, 2008, there was an engineer called Dave Ferrucci. And and the story actually goes. This is not a very widely known story at all. There was a team of IBM engineers sat in a restaurant, in the middle of when Jenna, who was the the he was the rock star of Jeopardy, and he was in the middle of a seventy five game. You remember the seventy five yeah. game run, unbeaten. This was just absolutely huge. And Jeopardy is a very very difficult quiz show because you get the answer and then you have to say what the question right. is. And you have sarcasm and humor and cultural references and history. Pop re- history, all of that kind of stuff. Very, very difficult for computers to figure out. And um, we're riffing. This is going down a foxhole already. Really and what actually happened was the IBM engineers were sat there because the the restaurant emptied and people went over to the TV screens in a sports bar just to see this guy that's on this massive unbeaten run in this amazing quiz quiz show. And they sat there thinking... What if a computer could actually do that show? Is it possible that any type of intelligent computer could actually go and maybe beat a human? It would be the ultimate test because it's, it's natural language processing, but it has to understand empathy and emotion and natural language and all these different, you know, it's not just keywords, right? This is understanding the full context of a sentence and a question. So they went back to IBM and the long story short, they asked if they could try it. They built a team and it was 15% successful. They fed in everything from all of the previous Jeopardy shows to the previous questions and answers and they tested it to see if it worked. With that corpus of information, Watson was 15% successful. 85% of the time got it wrong. What Dave Ferrucci did is he built a team in 2006. They started building Watson in 08. And in 2011, we competed on the quiz show, IBM Watson. You can Google it, look on YouTube, you see the full show. Watson beat that guy, the 75 games in a trot. And and it was this, again, it was another tipping point, 2011, where Watson took over. Now, when you think about what Watson is, people think it's this supercomputer that is now competing against the greatest mind in the world. And a lot of people at IBM don't talk about artificial intelligence. They describe it as augmented intelligence. We're trying to just augment, right, human behavior. But really all is, is it's a toolbox of commands that helps understand natural language. Now, I'll give you an example. You could go on ibm.com slash Watson, and you can go and see them all for yourself. But you might have tone analyzer, listening to a full sentence or a talk or paragraph, whatever it is that you've said. Could be customer service, could be a TED Talk. The tone, what did you mean when you said that, you know? What about the sentiment? Just like you would look on social media for years, Mint, I mean, you would have been looking at social command centers. Um, Is it positive? Is it negative? Is it neutral? Whatever personality insights? What personality attributes are you exhibiting as a result of this thing that you've just said? Are you showing heightened levels of trust, of love, of authority, challenging, of fear, anxiety, stress, blah, 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 whatever it is? Watson as a natural language processing engine basically just helps understand that, which is why Jeopardy was the perfect show in 2011. If you want to see what the 2019 version of that is, just go and Google project debater because we've just pit the new generation of Watson against the top debater in the world about two weeks ago, which was interesting in itself. But, you know, when you look at an IA, basically it's how do you understand how to engage with humans? So let's take general intelligence. We were talking before about the three different types of AI. You know, Alan Turing used to talk about the Turing test, about what point do you not know that you're dealing with a computer versus a a human? And we're getting incredibly close, especially in chatbots and customer service, where we genuinely don't know the difference because the systems are that intelligent. Mm -hmm. It's a million miles away from a super intelligence. You know, people like the guys, Ben Evans, you know, A16Z, You know, they talk about worrying about superintelligence. It's a little bit like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. Mm -hmm. We probably need to be worried at some point, Mm -hmm. but Elon's not sent enough of us there yet to worry about overpopulation on Mars. And at the moment, worrying about superintelligence is a distraction. How do we do our jobs better? Is, uh, you know, how do we embrace the promise of of AI or IA? Mm -hmm. Um, That's really the big question. And in my view... We have a window at the moment, as we sit here talking in February 2019, probably about 18 months before people properly start to use AI. And at some point over the next 18 months to five years, as it starts to get integrated into our daily lives, we're going to start to realize a whole load of other problems that we've not faced yet around bias of training these AIs. Um, But I think what this all creates is there's never been a more exciting time to be doing what we're doing right now to be trying to figure out how to use technology but more importantly how to use it for good because with any type of technology obviously it could go both ways and I, and i think that that for me is is the killer you know it's a, it's a good human and a machine is the best combination
1: All right so i want to dig in on one part of that which is the insight that made the Watson effective in Jeopardy. Just a little story, because we're part of storytelling. I worked at Donaldson, Nufkin, and Generet for four years, and behind me, with me, was one of my co-workers with this wonderful woman called Valerie Williams. Valerie was one of the first grad- women graduates of MIT. And not only was she a woman, she was also black, She also happened to have had something like a two-week winning streak on Jeopardy. She would read a book a day, was raising children by herself, as I recall. And
0: uh, And reading a book a day. And reading a book
1: a day. And and by the way, getting in at work at six o'clock in the morning with me, Valerie was quite something. So my experience of Jeopardy is through Valerie. But Mm -hmm. what is it in that meeting you had the restaurant how do you describe the insight that made Watson more effective you know the NLP element is perhaps a part of it but is there some lesson that we can learn about how we apply AI to help us be better that we can take away from the way that they managed to approach the jeopardy question
0: um that's a really really good point people it um, sounds glib, it's a cliche, it's, um, we have people problems, we don't have technology problems, we think we do, um, me and you are both big fans of South by Southwest, you know, we love Austin and, you know, keep it weird. keeping things weird and uh, one of the South by Southwest that I was at was with um, Nate Silver who wrote a fantastic book, The Signal and the Noise and he used to say we have too much of technology and not enough of ourselves And it's one of my favorite quotes, and I really, really love that. And the reason that that makes sense in the context of this is people look at things like AI, these super intelligent systems that can do amazing, amazing things, you know, 10 million records a second, read a million books, whatever it is. And they're like, okay, this is going to solve all of our problems. And it's not. It's not because it doesn't have as much as we want to try and feed in empathy, and humor and pauses and this level of belief that they actually, they're interacting with um, something understands, you know, it's, it's just a machine, right? So shit in, shit out. (laughs) Exactly. And and the thing is, I I don't mean to be flippant but if you speak to some of our consultants, we say Watson is never going to be more stupid than he was on day one, because it's got to be trained, right? And, and you've got a training from day one. It's not that you feed in a ton of information and we're not, uh, you know, charging one client a whole ton of money to train it. And then we pass off to one of their competitors. Oh, we've trained it now. So you can now go and have this thing. It's um, so all your data. You've got to train it with all your own things. So what happens is the people that fail are the ones that invest in the technology. And then they think, Oh, and like almost as a side, like, well, well, sh- shit, we need some people to train it and plug the data and the APIs and all the the, the different data sets in together. Whereas actually the way to make AI work is to make sure that you've got the right proportion of people to technology, so I completely agree with Gartner, the big analyst firm, who says for every one dollar that you spend in technology, you should spend seven dollars in people, and in fact, i'd probably go to the extreme of maybe seventy or maybe eighty percent plus you know if you've got whether it's a hundred pounds, a hundred thousand a million pounds, you know eighty percent of your budget should go on people to understand. Conversation strategy, a conversation dialogue, how it fits into the objectives of the business, what's it trying to achieve, how is the board going to be happy, blah blah, but all the, the political element. The technology itself is actually not expensive. Make that ten, twenty percent, thirty percent at the most. That's where most people go wrong. You know, they throw everything at the tech and they underestimate the value of the people to make the technology work. So the way I roll. Does that make so sense? I, it does.
1: I like to connect dots. And so, one to seven ratio means that there are eight parts. 100 divided by eight is 13.75, I think.
0: 12.5.
1: Is it 12.5? Well, I'm not a mathematician. You see, that's see, I need you. You're my intelligent <laughs> assistant. But that gets close to 15%, which is the yep. number that was successful in the Watson experience. So it, it leads me to make a conclusion and of course you know you need to defend that is that at the time they didn't they had more an investment in the machine than people and finally they figured out that you need to invest in the people plus the machine.
0: Yeah, and the interesting part about any part of AI is what it comes down to is a level of confidence. There was um an article a few in fact it was I'm I'm guessing. I'm thinking it was July 2017. I might be wrong, but it was it was one of the main AI articles in Harvard Business Review, and it was a headline that upset a lot of IBMers and uh, a lot of people at IBM. Now we've spent billions building Watson. We have 3,000 research scientists. We've got six Nobel Prize winners in this team, and we spend, you know somewhere between six, $7 billion plus a year on research. And this team creates like 9,000 patents a year. Incredibly, incredibly smart people. So they get very sensitive when you, <laughs> you cast aspersions over what they've invented and created, did it work or not? And the assumption in this Harvard article was a hospital that has spent, you know, $65 million plus on trying to figure out oncology treatments. And the way that the media interpreted part of that story, right from the beginning... Because after Jeopardy, Watson was put straight into Memorial Sloan Kettering. Oncology department, it was attached to a bunch of specific cancers to try and figure out how can we help serve physicians around this. And the media spun that as, oh, Watson's trying to cure cancer. Like, really? Okay. So, you know, and... That became the story, and a lot of people then thought, you know, this is AI trying to solve one of the biggest problems in the world. And now we're having the same discussions over climate change and education and mm. all this other stuff. Um, it's ne- <laughs> certainly democracy. And what's yeah. actually happening is that that's not what it was trying to do at all. This article was saying this hospital had spent $65 million trying to solve this problem, hadn't figured it out, so therefore it's going to cut some of the research and the budget to that particular team, and, and IBM was to blame. Really? Are you sure the technology was to blame? Because when you actually look at this AI, this intelligent assistant is really trying to affirm the diagnosis of some of these physicians. It's not trying to cure cancer. It never really was. What it's trying to do is to help them do their jobs faster. So for example, you know, cancers are incredibly rare, very, very specific, highly personalized treatments, which is not... A million miles away from when you look at very, very highly personalized customer segments within marketing. It's the same technology, it's just, you know, different applications. So, what it's trying to do is it's trying to acknowledge either the bias or the diagnosis that the physician has made to affirm, yes, you made the right decision. It's one of these five things, therefore, this is what you should do next treatment, drugs, whatever else the fact that it could read 50,000 medical journals a day and look at heart rate monitors and drugs and TPN, and, you know, all of the different medical data that comes in means that Watson could also say, yeah, but it could actually be one of these other five things as well. And maybe those five things, there's three things you've never even heard of. And in one or 2% of cases, the doctor may be actually, yeah, yeah, it could be that thing. So it becomes the intelligent assistant that just helps you to do your job better. And that's where a lot of people have kind of missed the trick around Watson is it's you put too much emphasis on the technology, not enough emphasis on the human. And it's got to be them both working hand in hand. So in that particular case, would you say that Watson is helping
1: undo our biases? Because it sounded like, you know, my sister's a doctor and her husband's a surgeon, Seamus and Lisa, and you come with it with all your experiences and, and yet, when you're making a diagnosis, you have your filters. Mm-hmm. And is it that AI is now at the stage where it's able to eliminate or help us eliminate as human beings our own biases?
0: It is. I think if you look at it, I mean, some of, some of the scientists that I've chatted to at IBM joke that the, the maturity of AI is, is kind of like, you know, let's say Watson's at high school. So a high school student is, is, you know, it's reasonably smart. It's on a learning curve, you know. It's an advanced placement student, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's trying to, it can figure out its stories and it can make a hypotheses and it can, you know, and it can do a certain amount of work with, within its own right. But for the, for the largest part, it's, there's some sort of, you know, search and retrieval, you know. It, it's not binary, but you ask it a question, it gives you the answer incredibly quickly. 10 million records a second, fantastic. I don't know. I work in marketing. What was the performance metrics of this campaign last year versus this? You know, may take a human five hours to find that out. An AI could do it in two seconds. Great. Black and white questions. But what if it's an incredibly gray question? Mm. And what if there is an amount of bias that could come into play for that? So here's a great example. Just two weeks ago, we had our biggest conference in San Francisco, Think. And just at the beginning of the year, we had CES, right? The big consumer electronics show. And, yes. at, and at Vegas, of course. And at, what we did in both of those shows is we launched something called Project Debater, which is where we used an AI to argue against a human over a topic that is incredibly gray. There's There's no binary. There's no right and wrong. So you need to be more informed, right? You know, you've got to be understanding of how do i make an informed decision based upon all the available data when there's arguments for both sides brexit whatever right Mm -hmm. and and we asked the audience to decide what the questions are going to be and it was fascinating it was things like um has, has social media destroyed you know relationships has Online trading and e commerce destroyed the high street. Should we ban violent video games? Should the public purse fund preschool or should the government fund um, space exploration? Very, very nuanced arguments. And what happens is we got a debater that was prepped, and that argument, within 15 minutes' notice, was given to IBM to argue for or against. And just like any presidential debate, you get a four-minute opening, a four-minute rebuttal, a two-minute closing. And just Google it to have a look because it's phenomenal. Because what you see, you could argue it's quite easy to make a four-minute argument about a topic just by pulling from lots and lots of sources, you know, 10 billion blogs and forums and networks and news articles and Wikipedia articles and whatever. But when that human makes a response to your four-minute argument and now with empathy and humor and thoughtfulness you have a four-minute response to yeah i really liked when you said this and when you said that but actually i think you were missing the point because actually the real question is this right pmqs or you know political debates actually Th-
1: even in in court where, where you know prosecutor and lawyers and-
0: barrister, absolutely because those next four minutes are the most important and then the two minutes after that with the closing statements, the fact that an AI is now capable of doing that as good if not better than a human, that's the tipping point that we're in in 2019 where people don't realize that's how advanced these natural language processing engines are. Um, and obviously we've got a good one, Google, Microsoft, all these guys have got you know their own versions of that. But AI is far more advanced than people realize. It's the people problems that we have. And some of that's maturity and some of that's trust. And when you listen to Dave Ferrucci, the guy that arguably invented Watson with his team, he says the only way that we're going to get over this to where we actually believe and trust AI is when it's at the stage that it could explain itself. Hmm. Because at the moment, we're at the stage where it can give you the answer and it can give a compelling argument. When it could say, here's why I think this here's why I gave you that decision or that argument or whatever. We're not quite there yet, but when we get to that, that's where there's going to be a tipping point in trust where people genuinely start to look at machines and think, Hmm. Yeah. Maybe, maybe this has got a role to play in my business.
1: Well, at on the one hand, there's that notion of trust through transparency. The second hand is actually, and there's something that I, I explored in artificial empathy is is how that very process is instructing and informing, educating us. Because if we can understand how that's working, maybe our brains could learn. We could do the new TED or the new um, learning platform to say, well, this is how we should be thinking differently. Jeremy, for the last part of the conversation, I want to get into your new book. And let me frame it this way. We have a world exploding with content. We have so many choices. Every morning we'll wake up, We yet we only have still 12 hours in our mostly conscious day. The rest of the time might be showering, taking care <laughs> of kids and sleeping. How do you think AI could be the insistent to help us get through this? And And in your case with your book, what are, what are the, some of the things that you think that executives should be looking at to help them be better executives, better marketers? Maybe riff on that.
0: Oh, my gosh. There's like 10 things to point out there. Um, okay, so th- let me just take the, so the last 12 months as an example. I've done 78 keynotes over the last 12 months, mm-hmm. and they've covered um, Wimbledon. And Wimbledon, for example, all the highlights from Wimbledon were created by an AI with no human involvement whatsoever. The computer created the highlight reel and packaged it and post-production and put the whole thing. Video. Video, complete beginning to end. The highlights of the the, the key matches at Wimbledon. I've spoke about um, the North Face, uh, the Masters... uh, Northface.com, NPS, or NFS, or whatever it is. XPS. xps Yeah, sorry. we have... Uh, sorry, I've got... Th- I'll put that in the show <laughs> Put that in the show. So many use cases where it basically boils down to an artificial intelligence creating content. And, and I could reel off 20 different names now where it basically boils down to that. Now, that creates a bunch of interesting questions. It creates nervousness among journalists... Well, what does that mean? Where we have an AI that could create a four-minute compelling argument around a topic, so it would be quite easy for it to create a compelling argument around any piece of, you know, and we've we've had AIs that have been building content and and you know, for better or worse, journalism for a little while. Um, so that that creates all sorts of interesting circumstances. Where what's the role that the human has to play within that, right? whether it 's video whether it 's audio whether it 's you know written content or something, and I think what this boils down to is this idea of original content, so what i 'm seeing is the average guy on the street, you know you guys listening today, me and you we're sat here thinking there 's an element of original content that we want to create, and there 's loads of rock stars in the industry. you know I work in the marketing industry, so I think of Byron Sharp and Mark Ritson, I think of. Um, Scott Galloway and Seth Godin and all these people saying absolutely fantastic things. You know, what could I possibly add to that conversation that's original? I would argue that maybe I can't, so I'll just sit back. I won't create any new content, but yet I'm surrounded by thousands of people who are interested in my view of the world. So when you think about, well, what what if I took all of the different things that I'm hearing... And I package them together in a language that my audience can understand. Maybe that's just taking old content and creating something new. So, if you guys live in the UK, you may be familiar with Brian Cox, who's been doing this incredibly well on BBC Two, where he's been taking incredibly complex scientific arguments, like trying to explain quantum physics, but he's put it in a language that the guy in the like my mum can understand. Mm-hmm. And he could describe he the solar system, and you know, with salt and pepper, bucket and spade, and an umbrella. Um, I love 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 love, love people like that we don 't have many people like that in technology, and i don 't think we have enough people who are confident in this belief that you could remix existing content to create something new because if we truly grasped what that meant, many of us would be more empowered about creating more compelling content that would impact our careers, our creativity, our self-worth, self-confidence, a whole load of other stuff. Because all of a sudden we would think, oh, actually, do you know what? I could really take all these people that inspire me, combine it, package it in a slightly different way, kick it out on a different platform to a new audience, and all of a sudden it's a new thing, and I'm the curator. So I don't know if you want to comment on that. We were just chatting about this before over the vodka, but this, this transition that we're going through that is super exciting about creators versus curators I think is just is like the most fascinating shift we're going through at the moment
1: well right now we're in a situation where there's so much content and in business we're so overwhelmed not only by communications but by the amount of things that we have to read that it's hard to know our ass from our head and you know our north from (laughs) our south and so the role of curator – so if if I want to take back your idea of the mm-hmm. journalist, in the end of the day, you can have journalists who are writing on the front page, which is a choice that the editor must make. Front page is the first thing you're going to read, and then page two and three and the sports page each has a hierarchy, and the journalists and the editor's role is also to instruct and inform that hierarchy – then you have investigative journalists who are mm-hmm. out to actually create some shit really? and uncover things which are hard to uncover. That's right. And so, you know, but even they are not being original, but they are doing, they have an imprimatur because they have something that they want to do, which becomes their originality. Mm-hmm. And and while none of us is really capable of really doing any Einsteinian thing, you can do something Einsteinian but never be understood or heard. So you can become the best-kept secret. Right. So ultimately, creativity is a thing. Originality is a thing. But selectivity is also a thing. And in today's world where we're overwhelmed, and I see so many people can't reply to emails or or whatever, even a telephone call, because they're too busy. I, I believe that that they aren't focused on what they want to do and they don't have help, the assistant, to help them focus on what they need to help on. So your book, tell us a little bit more about that, Jeremy, to close off.
0: Oh my gosh. So how this is where we are riffing because this is very, very early stages of this this new thing. Um the idea is remix. So how do we remix How do we take existing content and turn it into something new? Which is basically all a a remix is, isn't it? We're trying to be a DJ. Trying to be a DJ. You combine or edit existing materials into something new. Think about it. Like 20 years ago, the DJ, you're in a club. The DJ was the guy like one step up from the barman. He's in the corner of a room. And we, it's a, I don't think we ever gave a tip to the DJ. <laughs> he's, and he's spinning other people's songs, and you know, maybe he's trying to you know, experiment and do a little... Bearing in mind, this isn't like the underground clubs of New York. This is, for the, for the most part, the most of the clubs that the average Joe is going to go in, the DJ's in the corner of the booth playing some tunes, and it's like this, this thing in the background, this ambient noise, 20 years ago. wasn't that long ago. Fast forward to today. You look at things like Ultra or Tomorrowland, you look at the, you know, the EDM scene, whether you, I don't know if you guys are fans of that, whether you like, you know, Armin van Buren or Afrojack or Martin Garrix has been the top DJ in the world for the last three years. Let me just let me interject. I, I started the company called Mindset and then all of a sudden I discovered that Mindset with a Y is a DJ and he's (laughs) far more popular than I am. Of course he is because the future belongs to the DJs. Let me tell you where this came from. This is fascinating because I have a, I have a slightly love hate relationship with Gary Vaynerchuk and I love him to bits, but he's done some amazing stuff. So fair play. He's got the chops. So he's allowed to say whatever he wants. But you know, I, I, I accept some of the stuff he says, but not all of it, but years and years ago when he was doing wine library TV, which I'm guessing is going to be, I'm thinking back to maybe 2010. There was an episode he did about Britney Spears, and I've tried to find it online, and he's taken it down because Wine Library TV doesn't exist Uh anymore. Um, So Gary Vee, you need to get that back up because this was a great show. And in that show, he talked about the future belongs to the DJs. Now, it took me about a year to understand what that meant, but basically what he was saying is the future belongs to people who can take existing content and can repackage it and remix it for a new audience into something new when you truly understand what that means it empowers you to go and create all sorts of new different things so what my book is trying to do is looking back throughout time whether it's you know Thomas Edison didn't invent the light bulb he remixed various circumstances to create a commercially viable light bulb you know Henry Ford didn't actually create, you know, the first person to create the car. I mean, he himself said all kinds of things around how the the previous century created the circumstances with people that have invented lots of different things. All he did was combine them and remix them where conditions were so favorable that it was inevitable that the Model T Ford and then that, you know, created a revolution. What we're seeing now is that DJs like Martin Garrix are at the front stage with... You know, 400,000 people sign up to go to Tomorrowland in Belgium. The entire conference sells out in three minutes. It's the most, just Google it, go and look on YouTube, just look at anything around Tomorrowland. You could watch, you know, People of Tomorrow, the documentary. It's it's the most phenomenal shift. And I think this isn't just that the DJs have gone from the back corner of the booth to the front, where everyone's going mental, looking at them with these phenomenally big stages and fireworks. Because I think exactly the same things happened in technology. Brands and organizations used to be in control. And now this power shift has happened where customers are in control. And I think as content creators, we used to be so hung up on original content, whereas now we should be looking at how do we curate more stuff. So my passion is trying to encourage more people to curate existing content, turn it into something new, and like Simon Sinek says, how do we inspire other people to do what inspires them so that together we can change our world? That for me is, I think, the most exciting part of what we do at work at the moment. It's, it's not being sat around for lightning to strike, which might be, you know, one week, two months, five years, 10 years before we get that original idea. Start today with something as what was the president called? We were chatting about before. Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson. Do what you can with what you have where you are. Don't wait for resources, money, people, team, ideas. Do what you can with what you have, where you are. Start today.
1: Get cracking. And it makes me think, um, you know, obviously the word creator comes from what the role of the person at the museum who usually has to sort of select some 10% of the entire artwork and then make some kind of story. So there's the selection, there's the story you make of it, and and the adequation or the relationship with the people who are listening to you. And that is maybe where we need to close. So Jeremy,
0: last words, and how can people find you and follow what you're up to? Um, I'm I'm reasonably active on LinkedIn. I'm at Jeremy Waite on Twitter. The book is going to be called Remixed. The Future Belongs to the DJs. I suspect it's going to be the second half of this year. I would love to hear your thoughts on... Business ideas or things that have inspired you that are essentially copies, right? You know, good artists copy, great artists steal. The famous yeah, who stole that one? The famous Steve Jobs quote, who claimed he stole it from Picasso, but there's no proof of Picasso ever saying it. But any examples you've got, me and Mint would love to hear, and uh, and they'd make their way into the book, perhaps if you could um, share those thoughts and ideas with us. But all these amazing technologies that you know, arguably, are trying to change a world like Watson are really just remixing existing technologies and turning them into something new to create this new paradigm that's hopefully going to help us change the world together. So um, if I could leave you with one thing, it would be, first of all, thank you for listening. We've had some good fun riffing on this today, but there's a quote that I end some of my keynotes with. And I think Jobs said it, but I don't know if it's a cliche or not, maybe Biz Stone from Twitter. He said, technology is nothing. What's important is that we have faith in people, that they're good and they're smart and if we give them the right tools they'll do something wonderful with them Amen Jeremy thank you thank you everybody
1: thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minto Dialogue show you'll find the show notes and other blog posts on mintodialogue.com if you enjoyed the show please like the handy Facebook button or better yet head over to iTunes to give a rating and review but first, relax to Joss Sax's finger paint.
2: Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of self-secure. The ridges in our palms make colors blend and look ugly in the end. But they're pretty in their own disgusting values. We'd hang our portraits in. With all your favorite shows